Sometimes in the course of preparing to preach, one has the experience of trying to hold something in your hands that can't be held. You've been to a stream or a river or even the roaring ocean, go out to Santa Monica and try and hold on to the waves, and you can't. The waves can carry you, but you can't carry the waves. Talaga? You stand at the foot of a mountain and you think, how could I ever lift this mountain? Then again, Jesus told a story about that. He said, if you had faith, you could say to this mountain, be moved into the sea. And it would be done for you. I can't hold waves and I can't move mountains, but praise be to God. Thanks to him, I have faith. And so do you. And in that faith, I come to you this morning with a message that's been on my mind and in my heart and in my spirit to some degree like a seed or maybe like a thorn, I don't know, one way or the other, for years. I've known for some years that when, God willing, when we arrived as a congregation at this season of Holy Week, the days leading up to Easter resurrection in 2019, a year of fruitfulness, that we would look at the fig tree. We're going to talk about a fig tree today. What a humble, almost silly thing. But the more I've studied the fig tree in scriptures, the more I've found something profound. So much so that I'm not sure I can hold it. But I pray that by faith, God will allow me to deliver it. It's not that the ideas or concepts that we are going to talk about are so complex, but they run deep, like a river or a root, and they reach wide, like blossoming fruit. Final days and first fruits. That's the sermon series that I'm beginning today, hopefully a fruitful sermon series to help us to prepare in Holy Week. It's just three parts. Today is the first, and this Friday, the Good Friday service at 7.30 p.m., I hope that you can be part of that with us because I'm going to bring the second part of this series then. And a week from today, April 21st, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, we will conclude this series on final days and first fruits. Final days. That's what began the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on a colt, on a donkey. And all the people celebrating his name and laying down palm branches on the road in front of him, throwing their coats over the donkey and over the road and raising their voices to proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what they did not realize is what Jesus knew that these were his final days on earth. They presumed that it was perhaps the final days of their oppression, and they were right, but not in the way that they thought. They thought that perhaps it was the final days of Roman rule over Jerusalem and Israel, and in that they were wrong, although that rule would come to an end, and all other things would come to their logical end as well in the plan and will of God. The God who is the God of all days and the God who has said from the beginning in the final days there will be signs and seasons. But even at the end, there is a beginning. Do you know that Jesus is called the first fruits of the grave? In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about Jesus as the first fruits. In the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, he describes Jesus as the firstborn. Will you say those two things, first fruits and firstborn? When you came to Jesus Christ, if you've come to Jesus Christ, when you come to Jesus Christ and give your life to him, him who gave his life for you, you come and are reborn in him. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So he who is the first fruits of the grave, he makes you fruitful. 
And he who is the firstborn of heaven, he makes you one of the children of God. He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, the firstborn of the kapatid. And he also is the first fruits of the eternal harvest that God has promised for all who believe in him. Final days and first fruits. It's a word in due season for us. And let's pray that the Lord would enable us to hear it wisely and rightly. Father, we open your word today and we open our hearts. We open our ears and we ask of your will that you would make clear to us what you desire to speak to us and that you would enable us, Lord, to live out these final days with fruitful hearts, confident that you, Jesus Christ, who are the first fruit, you also make us fruitful. You are the living vine. We are the branches. Flow your life into us today by your spirit and your word, according to the will of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. There is, in fact, a celebration of first fruits. And you know what first fruits are, I'm sure. It's the beginning of the harvest. It's the first fruit, the first food that comes forth out of the crop. And there are seasons over which time various crops come to fruition. In the spring, there are early fruits. And in the summer, there are summer fruits. And I'm speaking not only of fruits as we think of them, but fruits and vegetables and grains and all the bounty of the earth which God has provided. So early in the spring, so blossoming in the summer, and in the fall, the final harvest, the conclusion the ingathering of everything that the earth has to offer in that cycle of the year before the slumber and death of winter and the renewal of spring again. And so it was that every spring, even to this day, the people of God known as Israel, the people of God known as the Jews, they are commanded by God in the word to commemorate what God has done in their past and what God has done in the present season. You'll notice that as we've talked about before, the feasts, the high holy days of Israel throughout the year, but which are focused primarily in three feasts that come spring, summer, and fall, that those feasts not only deal with things that God did pivotally in the life of national Israel, but also that God has done personally in the present realm. In other words, each feast is related to the remembrance of something that God did for his people, but also related to the harvest that is present in each season. So every year they remember the past, and every year they feast on what God is providing in the moment. And each of the feasts also has a prophetic purpose. Will you say that phrase? Prophetic purpose. Not pathetic purpose. That's the feasting of the world. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And how true it is. But the world feasts and, and celebrates over things that, from God's perspective, are rather pathetic. But God has his people celebrate things prophetically. That is, looking towards the future as well as the past, and in the present, being aware that God is the one in who in whom both of those things are united. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The one who sees the end from the beginning and who in the beginning prepared for the end. The one in whom all things are made whole. Each of the feasts is looking forward to final days in some way. In the spring, the Passover feast remembers that God delivered his people out of enslavement in Egypt. And he did so by death. The angel of death that visited the land of Egypt, but because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb on each doorpost of the people of God, the angel of death passed over. But among the Egyptians, the angel of death came in and took out the life of each firstborn. So, Passover looks back to that moment, but it also is recognizing that there is a fresh harvest of freedom this year. And so do you know that the day after Passover, 
comes the feast of first fruits. And that is the day when Jesus rose. He is the first fruits and he appears on the feast day of first fruit. How beautifully prepared God was for his plan to be carried out. In the summer, there is the Feast of Pentecost, which remembers God's arrival on Mount Sinai, giving his word, his Ten Commandments to his people, but also celebrates the summer harvest 50 weeks after Passover. And in the fall, there is the Feast of Tabernacles, when palm branches again are deployed in order to worship the Lord. And each family built their own tabernacle, a remembrance that God dwelt with his people in the wilderness after he had delivered them, and also a reminder that God enthrones himself in the praises of his people. It is the completion of the harvest, and it looks forward to the return of the king. These are the three most pivotal feasts of Israel. And today, we prepare ourselves to celebrate the most pivotal moment in Christian life, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not physically, bodily die on the cross and rise again from the grave, then you and I have no reason to believe in him as God and Messiah. And we have no hope for our future. We may as well eat, drink, and be merry, I suppose, because tomorrow we die we would still face something beyond death because it is appointed to every person to live and then die and face the judgment of God. And how could we possibly face that without any fear unless Jesus himself came to give his life for us and to rise again, first fruits of the grave. So in this preparation week, I wish to bring to us a message that is about signs and seasons. Turn to the person next to you and say, this message is about signs and seasons. Final Days and First Fruits is a series that will take us through the Holy Week. And it focuses on Jesus and the fig tree. There are stories and signs that relate to the fig tree in Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, today is Palm Sunday. It commemorates that day when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week of his earthly life. It's called the triumphal entry. And he was received by the people with great applause. But those same people, within the matter of about four or five days, would be so turned against him that the crowd would be crying out for his blood. And he would be crucified on Good Friday... That is why we call it Good Friday. It's the Friday in which his life was traded for ours. And of course, he would rise again on Easter Sunday morning. In this period of preparing to remember and commemorate these events, I will talk at each point about Palm Sunday, about Good Friday, about Easter morning. But the series we're looking at is going to be studying a parallel set of texts. You may remember that right after Jesus entered into Jerusalem during this last week, he has a really rather odd encounter with a fig tree. Is that ringing any bells with anybody? Do you remember the time during the last days of his life when Jesus was, by the way, going back and forth every day and every night between the Mount of Olives and Bethany, which was on that side of the Kidron Valley, where he had friends, Mary and Martha and John, uh, excuse me, Lazarus, whom he had raised from the, uh, the dead? They lived over there, and Jesus was frequently staying with them, perhaps others. And then he would come in the day and cross the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem. And he would come to the temple, and he was teaching. He did some very remarkable things there. In fact, the cleansing of the temple occurs at that time, when Jesus throws out the money changers and turns over all of the commercial uh, tables and and booths where people are utilizing the temple like a, like a religious bazaar, like a marketplace. Jesus said that the word of God says, my, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves, into money changers and money makers. All of this happens during that time. Each day he would come into Jerusalem, teach, and then in the evenings go back out, in part because he was at risk in the evenings. When the crowds dissipated, 
That is when the temple police and the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers who were turned against him and fixated at this point on having him put to death because they disagreed with his theology, they didn't like his popularity, and they wanted to remove him from the scene. He would leave each night to find a safe place to spend the night. That's how hunted and hounded Jesus was in his final days. And among those days, one morning he was coming into Jerusalem and he saw a fig tree and it was full and leafy and green. Now you may not know this about fig trees, but that's a sign. Say that word, sign. sign. When you see a leafy green fig tree, it should have fruit on it. And typically, if a fig tree is in full leaf, all of its branches are fully enrobed in leaves, clothed in leaves, then if it does not have fruit at that point, it is not likely to have fruit all season long. And so Jesus saw a fig tree fully in leaf, but without any fruit. Say, no fruit. No fruit. How do you say that? Walang bunga? Yes. Walang bunga. No fruit. And Jesus did something that stands apart from anything else in his earthly ministry. He cursed that tree and said, let no one ever eat fruit from you again. And following that curse, the fig tree withered. It was in the final days of Jesus' life. And if you want to hear about that, you'll have to come Friday night. Because I'm not talking about the cursing of the fig tree tonight. I'm talking instead about a story that Jesus told prior to that. But they are related. And not just because I put them in a sermon series together. They are related in the scriptures and in the mind of Christ. And that is because a fig tree ain't just a fig tree in the Bible. A fig tree is a sign. There is two times, or I suppose I should say there are two times in which Jesus interacts with the fig tree in the story I've just told. But there are also at least two stories that Jesus tells about a fig tree. One is the parable of the barren fig tree that we'll be looking at in detail today in Luke chapter 13. The other is what we will look at a week from today, Resurrection Day, Holy Easter Day, which is the parable of the budding fig tree which also shows up in Luke, Luke chapter 21. Now, these parables can be found elsewhere in the scriptures, but the story that I just told you about the cursing of the fig tree, we will look at it in Mark chapter 11 on Friday night. These three times when Jesus tells stories or does signs regarding the parable of the barren fig tree today on Palm Sunday, the cursing of the fig tree, which we'll talk about this Good Friday, and the parable of the budding fig tree on Easter Sunday. Now, by the way, if you have friends and you're inviting them to the service, or if you're just here today and you're not going to be able to be with us the rest of the week, each of these messages will stand alone in its significance. Each one will be intelligible, I hope and trust, and have meaning for you. But collectively, I think you'll find an enriched experience if you're able to track with me in the teaching of all three. Today, we look at Palm Sunday, but primarily a story Jesus told before his triumphal entry, the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke chapter 13. Let's look at it together. Jesus began telling this parable. This is during one of his moments of ministry. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. Notice that. It's a fig tree, but it's planted in the vineyard. You remember that the metaphor of a vineyard, as we've been looking at frequently throughout this year, this year of fruitfulness, is a metaphor which throughout the scriptures God used to describe his people Israel, a vineyard that God has planted. Do you remember how in John chapter 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches, the father is the vine dresser. So the vineyard is God's property, it's God's territory, and the vine is God. And you and I are the branches in that story. But here Jesus is telling a story about a man who planted a fig tree in that vineyard. But notice that that is 
essentially the same kind of metaphor being described here because the fig tree also represents Israel throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And I will show that to you as we progress. So a man planted a fig tree in a vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Interestingly enough, that will be the same experience Jesus will have later. Not before he told this story, but after. Already you can begin to sense there's something prophetic in the sensibility of Jesus telling a story that will later be played out in a way in his own life and at a pivotal moment in his final days. So this man planted a tree expecting fruit, came to the tree, found no fruit. And he said to the vineyard keeper, the servant who was in charge of, the, of taking care of this garden, look, I've been coming here for three years. And every season that I come, every year that I come, that is to say, I come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I never find any. Cut it down. Why does it even stand here taking up space? By the way, a fig tree actually has a very large and intricate root system. So if you have a fig tree planted there, it's sucking up a lot of the nutrients and water available in the garden, potentially even draining that away from the vine. And if it's not producing any fruit, why do we have it here? It's just sucking up resource and not doing anything. Hmm. For three years. Let's pause. Does the number of three years have any significance in the ministerial life of Jesus on earth? It is approximately the period which Jesus ministered up to his final days. For three years, I've been looking for fruit, but I still don't see any. So let no one ever eat fruit from you again. But the servant, vine dresser, says, wait, just one more year. It's how long? Just one more. Please, one more. And then we can cut it down. But in that one year, I'll do everything to cultivate it. I will tenderly care for it. I'll dig around it. I'll put fertilizer around it, which, by the way, is not typically necessary for a fig tree. But he's saying, I'll go above and beyond. I'll make an extra effort. I'll provide extra resource. And maybe it will bear fruit, but then if it doesn't, cut it down. Because after all, once it's cut down, it can never live again. So let's give it just a little more time so that it might live and be fruitful. Now, it may be that in this parable, this owner is not very knowledgeable about what the fig tree needs, at least not to the degree that the servant is, because fig trees typically do not bear fruit in their first three to five years. So he is expecting fruit when you wouldn't expect it to be there. However, Jesus did the same thing with the fig tree that he will see. He comes and finds it, as I said, in the spring, but that's early. In fact, when we look at Mark, you'll see that it says he came looking at, for, at that tree for fruit because it was in blossom, because it had leaves out of season early. It had shown its leaves early, so he expected that there would be fruit. So this owner is also expecting early fruit. But the servant is saying, give it just one more chance. I think of God and Moses when the people of Israel were turning against Moses and turning against God. And God said, you know what, Moses? I'll start over from scratch with you. I'll wipe these people out. And I'll make a nation out of you because these people are stiff-necked, hard-hearted, disobedient. But Moses said, please, Lord, don't do that for your name's sake. Give them more time. Bear with them. Even earlier, I think of God and Abraham. God coming down and saying, I have seen the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and I will no more tolerate it. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But Abraham said, please, Lord, for the sake of a few faithful, won't you relent and give them more time? Now, there's another interesting thing about first fruits. There's a law about first fruits, and it's found where most of the laws of Israel are found in the book of Leviticus, a book of laws. 
And it says that for the first three years, the fruit that a fig tree produces is not to be harvested. That's part of God's law about first fruits. And in the fourth year, do you know what happens to the fruit? It's given to God. It's given to him as sacrifice. So here, Jesus' hearers would be aware of that. They would be aware that the fig tree really wouldn't be expected to be bearing fruit in those years and that even if it had, it isn't supposed to be eaten and that the fourth year that is being appealed for, that is a year in which everything will be given over to God. That's the way a year of harvest is really supposed to be. The first fruits of the harvest and everything of the harvest comes from God and so the people of God recognize the harvest belongs to God. Why does Jesus tell this story? It seems fairly evident, doesn't it? It's just one more way of Jesus saying, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but without me you can't. And God expects fruit. Jesus is telling the story to say, bear fruit of the Spirit, or else face. The story is to warn people to get ready to be ready for the arrival of God who is looking for fruit. But you and I cannot possibly produce fruit on our own. We've been talking about this over and over, right? The tree cannot produce fruit through the force of its will, but rather through the life of the root. You and I cannot make up fruit for God, but he will look for fruit in us. So we must abide in him. The premise of the fig tree is the sign of what you and I are to be. So I want to look at three things here. The premise of the fig tree as a symbol in this story and in each of these episodes that we'll be looking at this week. The promise of the fig tree, because there is hope in this story, as there is always hope in the Lord. And finally, the purpose of the fig tree. And in doing so, I will have something to say about the premise of Palm Sunday and the promise of Palm Sunday and the purpose of Palm Sunday. So let us talk for a moment about the premise of the fig tree. What is it about in scripture? Why the fig tree? What significance does it have? You may remember that the fig tree is actually the third tree mentioned by name in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. In fact, very early in the book of Genesis, trees start getting named. In chapter 2, we are told of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, you and I, we wouldn't possibly be able to recognize these trees, I don't suppose, because we don't have trees like that in our world. But the third tree, which is named in Genesis chapter 3, is a tree you and I can recognize. It's the fig tree. And there are some fig leaves right there. And you may remember that, that that is why the fig tree is mentioned, because the people of God who have sinned against him by eating of the fruit of the other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God had said to them, do not eat of it because they weren't ready for it or because it wasn't his will for whatever purpose he deemed and his purpose is always right. Nevertheless, they had followed the temptation of the serpent the woman first and then the man, both equally sinning and equally responsible in their own way. And the moment that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. That was the work of having disobeyed. That was the fruit that they really received when they ate the fruit and didn't obey. They received fruit of the flesh, which was shame. And shame covered them, but what they realized was nothing else did. The glory of God was once their covering, and they felt no shame. But now that they had broken faith with the glory of God, they were uncovered by anything except shame. And being naked, they grabbed the leaves, the leaves, not the fruit, the leaves, to cover themselves. From the very beginning, the leaves of a fig tree are associated with sin and shame and hiding from God. You see, 
they sewed those fig leaves to cover themselves. They had a practical purpose for it. Fig leaves are large and durable, so they worked well for that. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the notion of the fig tree, which surely has at its root the remembrance of this story in scripture, also gets elaborated as a sign of God's provision. Remember, all the trees which God provided in creation, he said, I've provided to you, my people, so that you will have food to eat and you will be able to tend to what I've given you. So the fig tree is a sign of provision. Deuteronomy chapter 8 mentions the fig tree in describing the promised land to the people of Israel, a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. Are you getting hungry yet? Especially if you're fasting, and you should be. We're in the middle of a fast. We're still fasting this last week. In fact, the fast this week is the most important part of the fast. So hold fast in your fast. And think about fig trees. (laughs) This is a land where nothing is lacking, says the scripture. It is plentiful. But, says the Lord, when you've eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. That's the time to be careful. The Lord said to us at PCF, this would be a year of fruitfulness. And it is. And even if you don't feel that you see it yet, be proud of this better to have fruit that still isn't seen but is growing than to have a lot of leaves and no fruit. But be careful because when the fruit comes and blossoms and flourishes and a full harvest is made, that is the time when you might forget the Lord your God and forget that it comes from him and start thinking that it comes from you or belongs to you or is about something you've done rather than him. So be careful not to disobey his commands and lose faith in him. Once again, in 1 Kings chapter 4, the fig tree is used to describe Israel's safety and prosperity. During the lifetime of King Solomon, all of Judah and Israel lived in peace from north to south. Every family had its own grapevine and its own fig tree. In the New Living Testament, this is also translated as everybody had their own home and garden. In other words, everybody was completely provided for, and you'll notice it's the exact two symbolic elements from Jesus's parable, a vineyard and a fig tree. And all Israel had it. In fact, when Israel disobeyed and uh, King Hezekiah, who was a vassal of the Assyrian king, went to battle because he was betraying his vassal lord. The Assyrian troops were, uh, there was a leader of the Assyrian troops who came out and tried to get the Israelite army to betray their master, saying, look, King Hezekiah isn't going to be able to provide for you, but the Assyrian king will give each one of you your own land and your own fig tree. It was sort of like the promise of you'll get 40 acres and a mule if you just betray your master. So the fig tree is a sign of stability, safety, provision, a good and fruitful life. The king made silver as plentiful as in Jerusalem as stone, and the sycamore fig tree was utterly common growing in Israel. That's the other thing about the fig tree. It was a common tree that everybody could relate to. You saw them all over. So it was a recognizable symbol. The fig tree was a typical symbol of Israel that referred to God's provision all the way back to the very beginning and also ordained worship. Look at this picture of a fig tree. Does it remind you in shape and form of anything biblical? It looks almost like a menorah. This kind of fig tree is extremely common even in the wilderness regions that Israel was passing through during the time of the tabernacle. Some scholars feel that the Lord prescribed the form of the menorah lantern, the the tabernacle and later the temple lights. You've seen them even in Jewish arrangements today to mimic the shape of the fig tree. In other words, to show that the worship of God bears the fruit of light and that Israel itself is a fruitful tree bearing God's light fruit. So the fig tree is a symbol of worship, righteous worship. And yet, because of its associations with the fall and the fig leaves, 
It's also a symbol used by the Old Testament prophets repeatedly to refer to human rebellion and especially the rebellion of the people of God. In the Old Testament, that's Israel, but it applies to you and I today. Anyone who calls themselves a follower of God but does not rightly worship him according to his ways is susceptible to the same charge of rebellion and ultimately God's judgment. These are the things that the fig tree refers to. God's provision, ordained worship, human rebellion, God's judgment. Look here in Isaiah 28, for instance. There are many passages we look at, but we could, but I'll just look at a couple. Isaiah 28 describes God's judgment on northern Israel, also known as Samaria. This was during the period when the nation had divided and the northern tribes were most rebellious. There was rebellion everywhere, but the north was most rebellious of God and had cut themselves off from the vine, as it were. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, says the proud city of Samaria, the capital of the north, the glorious crown of the drunks of Israel. In other words, people who were given over to their own appetites, but had no notion of what God desired nor any inclination to fulfill his will. They will be trampled beneath the enemy's feet. It looks fertile right now, but its beauty will fade like a flower. Whoever sees it will snatch it up like an early fig, an early fig, a fig that blossomed early in the season and fell down and got picked up and consumed. God's judgment. Isaiah 34 describes God's final judgment on the earth, and once again makes reference to a fig tree. The heavens above will melt away and disappear like a rolled up scroll. The stars will fall from the sky like withered leaves from a grapevine or shriveled figs from a fig tree. The vine and the branches, the grape and the fig. And this terminology shows up again in Revelation. It's a reference to the final judgments. But there's also a promise in the fig tree. Proverbs 27, 18 references the fig tree in describing the nature of faithful and fruitful servants. Think about the servant in Jesus's parable. That servant is the one who's interceding. That servant is the one who as an intermediary is there to save the life of the tree and make it fruitful. So also in Proverbs 27, we are told, as workers who tend a fig tree are allowed to eat the fruit, so workers who protect their master's interests will be rewarded. The fig tree figures prominently in God's prophetic promise of hope to his people. And one of those places is in Joel chapter two. The promise of the fig tree shows up in Joel chapter two among several places, but this one is key for reasons that we'll discuss in just a moment. Don't be afraid, my people, says the Lord through his prophet. Be glad now and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. So here the Lord is saying, after judgment has come, then restoration. After death, then resurrection. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. You see the pairing over and over again, right? The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts. Think of Jesus who said, whoever holds onto their life loses it, but whoever gives up their life will receive life from me. Think of Jesus saying, no one who has given up friends and, and family and home for my sake here on earth will not receive the same from me both here on earth and eternally in the age to come. So the Lord says, I'll repay you. I'll reward you if you are faithful. Once again, you'll have all the food you want and you will worship. You see, ordained worship. You will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. Then you will know that I am among my people Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. That's the promise of the fig tree, is that if you will know God, you will receive his fruit and he will be with you and pleased with you so that he can come and say, not never bear fruit again, but rather well done, good and fruitful servant. 
Now look what follows immediately in Joel chapter 2 after this passage. You may not be as familiar with the words we've just read, but surely you'll recognize these. The very next verse says, Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. In other words, first fruits and Pentecost. And that's the very passage that Peter preaches on Pentecost. And that's why. First fruit, then the power of the Spirit. And I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn to blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. First fruit, then fire of the Spirit, then fire of judgment. But whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. That's the promise that we see in the fig tree. The symbol of the fig tree reveals that God provides, but people rebel. And God responds. And to those who will not repent, as we talked about last week, God judges not because they don't repent alone, but because they produce no fruit. And they can't without repenting. But God forgives and blesses and provides the fruitfulness wherever there is a heart of repentance that is open to receive the faithful fruit of God. So, I want to conclude in talking about the premise of the fig tree, the promise of the fig tree, and the purpose of the fig tree, which we come to. And also to wrap this into our celebration today and remembrance today of Palm Sunday. Because just like the Israelites remembered what God had done in the past, and we remember that as well, their deliverance out of Egypt was our deliverance out of slavery. Because what God did for them paved the way, not only for Israel, but for the Messiah. And the Messiah paves the way for us into the kingdom. But we also look back to Palm Sunday. We also look back to Good Friday. We also look back to Easter because of what God is doing in our midst today and what he will yet do. The premise of the fig tree is God provides faithfully, even when we are faithless. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's who he is. God provides promise of the fig tree is God forgives. The whole reason Jesus is telling the story is so that you have a chance in advance to change your ways. That's the point of the story. The story isn't people are lousy and you're really going to pay for it. And anybody who agrees with me, you and I, we can really laugh it up when people pay the price. That's not the heart of God. It's a shame that very often people think that's the heart of Christianity. And one of the reasons they do is because Christians sometimes adopt that attitude, or at least so-called Christians. But there's no fruit in that. There's no evidence of God in someone saying, you, you terrible sinner, you've really got it coming to you, and I can't wait. That's not the way Jesus felt. Jesus is the servant saying, please wait just one more year so that they might be saved. God is patient with you so that you can be saved. And not just you, but everyone. That's the point. But it's urgent. So if God is patient, you and I must be urgent. We must be urgent to share the gospel. There's no time to waste. The clock is already ticking on the last year. That's the, that is also the point of the parable. The time is ticking. And you don't know the day or the hour, so make ready. And if you are called to be the one who tends to the tree that isn't fruitful, which is the people of the world, then God's not just looking for your fruit, he's looking for theirs. And he's holding you and I accountable for it. We're the ones that he has told to make it known to people. He will have less judgment for those who did not ever hear the gospel, but were ignorant in their ways, though it is not enough and judgment still comes. But how much more someone who knows the word and knows the Lord, but fails to share it. 
That is someone who's got all the leaves and none of the fruit. And I tell you, Jesus will say to that one, never bear fruit again. And they will be put out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let it not be so among us, among Akapate. Because God forgives all we have turned us away. But God is there saying, I will tend to you. I will water you. Listen, if you can take this, I'll surround you with fertilizer. You ever feel like God's doing that to you? Lord, you're really dumping the poop on me here. And he's saying, yeah, well, I want you to grow. You don't usually have to do that, but you're not producing fruit, so I guess I've got to put some poop around you to get it going. If you don't like the poop so much, why don't you produce some fruit? You say, well, I can't produce it on my own. Abide in him. Abide in him, and he will produce fruit for you. The purpose of the fig tree is to remind you of signs and seasons. Jesus said, you know how to read the signs in the sky. Why don't you know how to read the signs of the times? You know how to read the signs of the seasons in the fields of the earth and the trees of the field. But why don't you know how to read the signs of the spirit? Let me tell you a story in the terms that you know. Since you understand trees and harvests, I'll speak to you that way so that you can understand souls and spirit. God is coming. And his wrath and his reward are with him. Wrath wherever there is no fruit. Reward wherever there is faithfulness. The premise and the promise and the purpose of Palm Sunday are intimately related to this. In fact, the whole point of Palm Sunday is not only God is coming, but God is here. God has arrived. Look, O Israel, your king comes to you riding on a colt on the foal of a donkey. He comes in peace. That's a sign of peace. A king that came for war came riding on a horse. In Revelation, Jesus is described as riding on a horse, or at least there is a victorious warrior described who comes with wrath and glory and rides in on a horse to win the final battle in the valley of Armageddon. But here on this day, this is the servant coming in peace to say, I'm here to give you one more chance to be fruitful. That's the premise of Palm Sunday. And the people worshiped, Hosanna, Hosanna. But they didn't worship wisely or rightly because they didn't really know. Nevertheless, even though they were a rebellious people who would crucify the very king that they were welcoming, God provided for them. He provided a ram in the bush, Jehovah Jireh, the God who gives the sacrifice. Instead of your sons, I'll pass over your sons and give you mine. I am the God who provides life to you when you were rebellious to me. That's the promise of Palm Sunday, that even if you and I have not fully understood and even where you and I have rebelled, if we will open to God today, he provides because he is alive. Jesus came to Jerusalem to die and he knew it. He said it over and over again, but they didn't hear it. How could they hear Jesus saying something over and over again so plainly? I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed. The religious leaders will hand me over to the Roman authorities and I will be put to death, but three days later I will rise again. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? What do you mean by what does he mean by that? It's pretty, pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's not like a riddle, but they thought it was. It seems like a riddle. It's not a riddle. He's going there and he's going to die. Well, he can't mean that. Peter said, stop saying that. It bothers people. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking about things from the worldly perspective, but I'm talking about things from heaven. 
Peter's like, because at that point, Peter had a lot of leaves and no fruit. But God forgives and God provides. Jesus was coming to die. He set his face like flint, like a stone, like an arrowhead to Jerusalem. And he knew he was going to die. And he didn't want to. Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Because he knew that unless a seed dies and falls into the ground, it will not bear fruit. Jesus came to Jerusalem to live Jesus came to Jerusalem so that you would live. You and me. He came to die so that we would live. And he is alive. Lord, you're here today. And because you're here, we can consider that which otherwise would be overwhelming to us the judgment of the Lord. We can look at our lives and realize that there may be a lot of leaves, but there should be more fruit. We can see the ways in which we've used those leaves to hide from you. Hide our sin, hide our fear, hide our laziness, our indulgence. Lord, we want to make ourselves naked before you right now. Not in any profane way, you know, but in the purest way, like a little child before its parent, without any shame, without any fear. We want to be in your arms. We want to be seen by you. And we confess our sin. But we say thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us. And if there's anyone, Lord, hearing this prayer right now who hasn't taken hold of that opportunity to repent of their sins and declare that you are Lord of their life and trust in you as their Savior forever, then I pray that in this moment of prayer, you would touch their heart, Lord, and enable them to do so. And friend, if that's you, just make that agreement to God right now. Just tell him, I'm giving myself to you. I'm I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to be the Lord of my life. Not my will anymore. Your will be done. I'll read your Bible. I'll, I'll join your church, wherever it is. Wherever the local body is that you're calling me to. I'll get together with other believers. I'll learn about you. I'll get baptized in water. I'll get baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'll get on track to fulfill my purpose because you are alive and you have called me to share your word. And for all of us who know the Lord, whatever the point of your challenge right now, I want to remind you, your king comes to you today in peace. Welcome him into your heart. Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, Lord. That's what it means. Save us. Save us. You save. God saves. You're our Savior, Jesus. And we love you. Amen. Amen.